Bakalım tamam değil. My mama uses power. Thank you for listening. Bye. Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Welcome, welcome back to Mom Jeans. We are excited to be continuing in our series of busting myths. And I'm sure that you are all wondering if we're going to touch on the whole dieting myth. Don't worry, today we are. I'm sure you've all heard the well-touted statistic that 95% of dieters will regain the weight in three to five years. So everyone can kind of scoff at the fad diet, but then they see that captivating, you know, success stories on commercials or before and after pictures on Instagram, or they hear their friends talk about how many inches they lost. And people kind of are tempted. They secretly wonder if it does have any legitimacy to it. Did this person, this friend, finally find the answer? So today we are busting the myth that <laughs> diets are effective for permanent weight loss. In this episode, we want to give it to you straight. Okay, we're going to do it. We are going to cover both the nutrition science and the psychology of why diets work short term. That's right, we said it. No. And then why diets don't work long term. Okay, there we go. That's better. And then we are interviewing the fabulous dietitian, Delina Soto, to help us bust this myth even further. All right, so what is a diet? According to our friend Wikipedia, in nutrition, diet is the sum of food consumed by a person or other organism. The word diet often implies the use of specific intake of nutrition for health or weight management reasons. All right, Tina, why do diets work short term or temporarily? I don't know if y'all know this about me, and I hope you do, but if you're just joining in on our podcast, maybe you don't, but I don't like diets, okay? (laughs) And giving y'all the reasons that diet only work in the short term and not the long term, if that's going to have you not diet, then I'm going to do it. So most diets are some form of restriction, and this can be from only eating grapefruit, eating between the hours of 12 and 6, and giving it a fancy name like intermittent fasting, cutting out meat, hating on carbs and never eating them again, fine. It it, it doesn't matter. If it's based off restriction, it's a diet. If it smells like a diet, it's a diet. And they (laughs) honestly, they're all terrible for you and in the short term and in the long term. But I'm going to explain why they may actually work in the short term and why people continue to engage in that diet mentality. So when we restrict our bodies, our bodies will compensate in order to save our lives. 
When dieting, most often, restriction is drastic and only sustainable for a short period of time. And because these diets are often drastic, they result in quick water loss, which is why people can lose, I don't know, X number, crazy number of pounds, in one week. The reason being is that every molecule of carbohydrate, you have three water molecules. And while most diets restrict out one of the main macronutrients, carbohydrates, that when you don't eat them or restrict them, you will feel like you are thriving because you lost X number of pounds in two weeks and believe that it's working. But unfortunately, that that number loss, that weight loss, the majority of that is actually water and or muscle loss. And then, yes, eventually, if you keep up this terrible restriction, your body's going to have to end up turning onto itself and eat muscle and fat as fuel if you aren't giving it nutrition through food. All right, on to you, Rachel. Tell us a little bit more about the psychology behind this. All right. Is that what you're going to be talking yes, about? Yes, I am. Yes. Because yeah. I always talk to clients about a sense of purpose. The bottom line is that all humans need to identify their sense of purpose in order to feel like they're living a meaningful life, right? We all kind of want a reason to get up every day. So sometimes our purpose is the things we need to do to literally survive, like shelter, air, warmth. But the deeper sense of purpose that creates contentment is when people are able to define goals and ideals and ideals that are personally meaningful and reach beyond ourselves in some way to the greater connection to or impact on the world. So purpose gives our life meaning when we feel lost and disconnected. I bet you know where I'm going with this. In almost Mm -hmm. every story of body image distress or disordered eating, there's an element of where and when food, weight, or exercise became a way for a person to hide from pain, cope with uncomfortable feelings or trauma, and find purpose. So, for example, Hmm. at a year into the pandemic, NIDA, that's the National Eating Disorder Association, reports that calls to their eating disorder hotline are up 70%. Whoa. And I personally am seeing this in my practice as unspeakable amounts of people turned to exercise or controlling food during quarantine and the extended period of social distancing in order to cope with the loss of jobs, hobbies, interests, school, and connections that gave them a sense of meaning in the world. We all struggle with feeling lost in life at times, and when that feeling arises and we're driving down the freeway and see a billboard, it's not usually an ad saying, hurting? Call a therapist. It's a diet oh. advertisement, right? Every yeah. billboard says, are you feeling unhappy? Are you don't feeling like yourself? Just try to lose some weight. And then here's this smiling person. Look how happy they look. So because our society believes that thinness equals happiness, because thinness is higher up on the ladder of the socially constructed body hierarchy. Therefore, we get this message that if we lose weight, we'll be accepted and we'll be happy. So we try it out. And to Tina's point, temporarily, you know, it works because you're losing your water (laughs) and muscle, uh, but you feel a little accomplished. So you go a little longer. You have some bragging rights. People start complimenting you. People are noticing. People are praising you. So now we're getting immediate reinforcement. And this helps keep the restrictive behavior going on, but it's not sustainable. Our sense of purpose wanes, our body can't keep it up. So here comes the diets don't work long-term. All right, Tina, can you help explain the science behind why these diets don't work long-term? Yes, I can. This is my favorite part. (laughs) 
Now, while some people, such a small percentage, tiny, tiny percent, can sustain this way of torture, of restriction for longer than a couple of months or maybe a year or so, most people cannot keep up with this form of deprivation. And the reason is set point theory and your biology. Your body has a set equilibrium that it is trying to maintain within. And if you go back to episode 45 in this season, you can hear more about um, the equilibriums within your life phases. But if you are restricting and your body is eating itself, your body is going to try to warn you that you are starving. It cannot tell if you are dieting or if you're starving. So it tries to get your body back to its equilibrium. And as a result, it may want you to eat more. So this may come out through binging or overeating or some form of compensation is going to occur. In this, your weight will slowly or most often quickly return to its beginning place and then some that you were prior to the diet. This is the protection mechanism. Your biology is always going to win. So one of the many flaws with research is that most of the studies do not control many of the aspects of one's intake, and therefore there are too many variables to see if the quote-unquote diet is actually working. And there are not many studies done that show long-term success. Many of them are only done for six months to one to two years. So yeah, if you look at some studies within the first year, the participants may have lost weight or been at a lower weight than the beginning. But if you actually tracked the weights, you may see that towards the end of some of these studies, the participants are actually in an upward trend despite being lower than where they actually started. But the study is skewed. It's going to show that the participants lost weight and quote unquote kept it off. So in short, research is flawed. Diets don't work. And our society has a lot of work to do so that people can start trusting their bodies and not live the rest of their life trying to shift their weight. Rachel, can you go a little bit more into what happens emotionally when people are dieting long-term? Sure. So we just talked about the immediate gratification of feeling purposeful, receiving praise, and excitement of the new weight loss achievement, right? But what happens when that wears off? So Tina touched on the deprivation mentality, but I want to touch on how exhausting it is to have to work so hard at something that is just so not right. (laughs) So there is a diet rebel concept. Remember how we discussed that diets work for a minute because it gives a sense of purpose? Well, just like you can't slap a Band-Aid on a gaping wound that needs stitches and expect it to heal the wound, you cannot slap a weight loss goal on deeper underlying emotions and triggers that contributed to the sense of purposelessness or other emotional wound that led you to seek out the diet in the first place. So while self-care and healing those traumas may have an impact on your relationship with food and exercise and change your body, it's only a side effect. No juice cleanse can cleanse the pain from your trauma. No sugar avoidance can help you avoid setting boundaries in your toxic marriage. And no running on the treadmill can help you run from the internal wounds you carry wherever you go. But you know what can work? Therapy, healing, trauma work, and aligning to the values that help you make meaning in life, those actually will change your relationship with your body. So diets don't work long-term because they aren't addressing the real problem. The problem is internal pain, not your external body. Ooh, that was deep, Rachel, and I got chills. (laughs) So 
I think we should keep going and bust this myth. Let's do Let's it. Let's do this. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Delina, our upcoming guest. Delina Soto is the founder and bilingual registered dietitian at Your Latina Nutritionist, mom of two and a first-generation Dominican-American. Throughout her career, Delina has worked in the Latinx community as one of the only Spanish-speaking dietitians helping clients ditch diets. Through Instagram, she has been able to expand and reach Latinas all over the world and has helped them ditch the diets and practice body respect. Let's get to it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast episode. We have Delina Soto joining us to chat about the myth that, ooh, I'm going to get angry even just saying it, but (laughs) diets are effective for permanent weight loss. So, ooh, we're going to get at it today, but welcome and thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, all right, we're, we're kicking it off, jumping right in. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about who you are and why you are coming on today and hold this passion of busting this myth? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I am Delina. I am a registered dietitian. Um, I live in, you know, the PA area and I... I come from, you know, a Latino background. And I think that one of the main reasons why I'm so passionate about this is because again, you know, especially in my culture, I see it a lot. There's just this idea that everybody has to look the same. And if you don't look, have this certain body type, you're constantly chasing it. um, And you're constantly restricting and trying to achieve this weight loss. Um, which is so detrimental for your mental health and just life in general. Um, it just seems like you're never good enough, right? Cause you're trying to achieve this ideal that you weren't really meant to achieve. Totally. Yes. We are all, I always bring it back to poodle science. I don't know. I, yes, just, like, I love poodle science. poodle science. I feel like <laughs> we have literally linked this YouTube video a million times. And so Rachel's like, okay, but, um, yeah, we're all we're all dogs. That's <laughs> we're a different breed. We're all different breeds of dogs. So let's all stop trying to look like damn poodles. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Cool. I'll get off that for a second. <laughs> no, but but it's true. And um, I actually just did a presentation on BMI um, last week, last Monday. We talked about this and I linked to the video in my presentation and I made everyone watch it because it's such a great, you know, visual of just why it's, it's just unrealistic for everybody to try to be a poodle, but also because just, you know, just from the history standpoint, they only used men Mm -hmm. (laughs) for the BMI chart. Mm -hmm. Like we have body parts that men do not have. Um, that way and depending on how big they are they're going to add to your gravitational pull on that scale so you know kind of try to fit this this mold right of like you have to be this certain size because you're this height it just it's 
to me, it's dumb. Well, yeah, I think that the origins of this myth go back to what you're talking about, which is if you don't have this certain body type, then do what you need to do to get it. So that means restricting, dieting, exercising, juicing, smoothing, I don't know, whatever people are doing out there in order to get this body type so that, because that is the quote unquote correct or better one. So I'm curious if you've done any research or in your uh, in your education, if you learned about this myth's history or origination and what, what you could share with our listeners. So school was not where I, I learned all of this, right? <laughs> Let's be we honest actually here. learned the opposite, right? It's yes, like we learned the opposite. To support sure. this myth. Yeah. So we are not going to yeah. go into that. Yeah. No. Um, schooling did us dirty on that aspect. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, I think if you're a critical thinker, you then start questioning these things, right? And you're like, oh, like for me, it was like, all right, you're telling me that as a Latina woman, I need to look like this. And you're telling me that the reason why my community is sick is because of the way that we eat, but something's not clicking here. (laughs) Um, And I, so during school, I always felt like something was missing. Like there was a link that just did not fit what I grew up seeing. And so, yes, when I graduated, of course, you're trying to find a job, you're, you've drank the Kool-Aid for the last four years and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm going to help my community become healthier and, you know, use this weight centric centric model. But as I started working in the community, again, those thoughts kept creeping in, like, this just is not right. Like, I'm, I'm seeing these people, they're completely healthy, but their doctor or, you know, themselves want to shrink them, even though there's nothing wrong with them. There's no reason why they need to be 20, 30 pounds lighter because of this chart. But when you are sitting there and talking to them, they're active, they're eating well, they're just, you know having a very balanced life and yet they're still trying to shrink um and so it wasn't until i figured out that there was this thing called instagram that i got on it and <laughs> i was like holy crap look at all these dietitians talking about this that i've never heard of um and i kind of like dove into the world of haze and intuitive eating and i was like i can't go back like this is exactly what what i've always known to be true in my heart um and just the science to back it up plus the just the the racial disparities too um that also hit home because growing up in philly we have you know one of the biggest food deserts in the country um they just released i think last week uh the top 10 poorest cities in the country and we're number one oh my God. um and we're number one but yeah we have the highest real estate but it's it's a conundrum. Um, but, but anyway, you know, all of these things, it kind of all came together for me because I'm like, all right, you know, we're blaming, you know, black and brown communities, but can we look at the bigger picture? Can we stop blaming our actual food? Um, that again, doesn't fit the might plate mold, but it's still very nutritious and we're still getting all of our, you know, nutrients. It's just not picturesque (laughs) or how it's depicted um so yeah so I think it wasn't until I did my own research and and kind of like dove into this world that it really clicked for me um and I really understood you know it doesn't matter everybody knows I, I feel like it's common knowledge you do a diet 
you sometimes lose weight, but then you always gain it back and some. So it's this yo-yoing. So, you know, it's, it's understanding that the chronic yo-yoing is worse for you than if you just find homeostasis. Right. Yeah. I think uh, research out there does support, depending on the research you're looking at, but research does support that like it isn't the individuals at the higher weight or holding the higher BMI, but it's the individuals that are engaging in the chronic dieting, the yo-yo dieting, um, or the weight cycling that actually is, um, research is showing that they are having higher health risk or, um, chronic diseases and things like that versus if they were to just honor their body and sit at their true weight. I think one of the most influential, uh, moments for, me recently was when I was, this was a couple years ago, but when I was listening to Dr. Lindo Bacon speak and they were saying that part of their work is they take research and kind of break it down. And if you look at uh, a research study that's supporting weight loss and saying this weight loss or this diet was effective for weight loss, what Lindo did was they plotted out the weight markers for the entire duration of the study. And so what you would find is that the start and finish weight was actually lower. The finish weight was lower than the start. But if you plotted out every single weight, you would notice that upon like three months to the research study closing, the weight actually started to trend up. So if we would have seen this research two years, three years, five years later, the individual may have been at a higher weight because the diet they're engaging in isn't sustainable for a long-term pattern and the weight loss that they achieved was really only sustainable for a very short period of time. And that to me was like, thank goodness for individuals like Dr. Lindo Bacon that's able to kind of sit down and debunk the research that's out there and really point out that this, this study is ultimately flawed and only providing us kind of a, a pretty picture, but not the actual reality of what's happening. So uh, No, I think that's something I always think about too with the research is you have to think about, you know, you're coming in, you're like, I'm part of a research study. This is so cool. I'm finally going to get to do it. They're going to get the answer. And you're so motivated. The brain has so much power over us, right? You're so motivated. You want to please these researchers. You want to prove them right. That even the most restrictive thing seems doable, right? Because it's only for this short amount of time I'm going to show them and prove them that I'm the best that I can do it. And there's a lot too that, that there's a lot of human, you know, aspects that go into these research. It's not like you going on your own and trying something crazy. You're probably not going to be able to do it long-term because you don't have that, like, that want to please, the researchers or, or to please, you know, what, whatever motivation is, is, is behind it. And so I think it's very, it's, it's very different too. Like when you look at that, right, people are able to do it because there's other motives too that, that are human motives that are, they're coming into play. That's just not natural, normal, regular life. 
one of the things that makes me the most frustrated about this myth is when I see parents engaging in these conversations, either at the playground or even on these like mommy Facebook groups or social media groups. Like I will literally see someone post, hey, I have a wedding in a few weeks. I need to drop X amount of pounds. Like, what should I do? And like 250 people will comment, cut this out, do this, do that, do this. And sometimes they'll be like, um, how about maybe you just buy a dress that fits? And everyone and everyone will like attack me, and I'm like, well, now I'm scared for my. You're the salmon. So, but salmon swimming upstream. Yeah, Sorry, girl. yeah. But it's so frustrating to see people be like, oh, all I did was cut out, I don't know, eating and breathing and water and sleeping, and I looked great in my dress, and it's just so harmful. So I'm curious how you see this like perpetuation of, hey, diets work, and this is all you have to do. How do you see that being so harmful to people? It's really harmful. Um, I, I try not to place judgment on the person and more of like, let's look at the big picture and how society has allowed this to happen. I, I often, you know, get really angry at when fingers are pointed just on humans <laughs> in that like, we want to be pleased. We, again, we want to be liked and accepted. And this is what society has taught us, right? That we need to be a certain size in order to be accepted. And so all these people are saying all of this because they've done it and they feel, they felt great when they did it because maybe they were praised and they felt good, but now they probably are not um, at that same size but they feel like experts because they did it once. <laughs> and then, you know, this, this person's asking for help. So you, they automatically feel like, oh yeah, I can help you because I did it and it worked for me. And I think that that's, again, the like, it's like, it's, it's the unfortunate issue with social media and just the, the the media in general that again people are boosted like this person did it like when you look at magazines like people magazine or like you know all the other tabloids they always have pictures of people like this person like new year new me you know that in january these these magazines are going to be full of it um but again you're not looking at like what kind of restriction were they doing how detrimental was it for their health their social you know just life um just were they able to just like enjoy time with their family like there's so many other things that yes you know you can restrict and do all of this but is it worth it that's usually what i ask like is it worth it it's it's not your fault for wanting to do this because we live in this society but i want you to step back and detangle it and think of like what is it that you're trying to achieve and is it worth it to live a life like that yeah i think if we're coming back to research, how is this harmful? The constant trauma and self-hatred, actually, there is research that shows that those micro-traumas can actually contribute to poor health outcomes, right? Like the constant hatred of yourself does not align with this overall arching value of health. And if health is designed of physical and emotional and spiritual and, and, and whatever you make that, then constantly berating yourself for never being good enough, never looking the right weight, size, whatever, that is contributing to poor health. Now, look, I get it. We all live in diet culture. 
and I'm coming from privilege here. I'm a white cisgendered woman, like who lives in a straight sized body, abled body. So, you know, I recognize that this is fully a systemic issue. And my hope is that by continuing to talk about it, continuing to spread this awareness to individuals who are listening, that that is going to be the movement for change. I think it's interesting to point out, too, that so many people kind of feel like the anti-diet world is almost too much against weight loss. So I'm wondering if the two of you dietitians could kind of bust, like, listen, it's not that we're necessarily against this concept of weight change, weight loss or weight gain or weight fluctuation, but this this diet culture and this the severe harm to our bodies is kind of what we're against. So I'm wondering if the, the two of you could tackle it for us about how people can kind of understand what we're trying to get at here. We're not trying to shame it necessarily. We're not trying to poo-poo the, any weight changes, but there's something different when you're talking about this permanent weight loss and this like dieting to get there. Yeah. So I'm always very honest um, with anybody that I work with and on my page, I'm constantly talking about this. And I think it's important to understand if you want to pursue weight loss, cool. I'm just not the dietitian for you, right? Like that's not what I'm going to help you do. And if you're willing to give me a chance and you want to work with me and you want to look at how to detangle, right? Health from a look or a size, then that's what we're going to do, right? Because in general, society associates, just like the poodle science, that a look or a specific number is what health is. And that has been ingrained in us since we are children, right? And so it's really hard to have someone tell you, yeah, we're going to work on your health, but don't worry on the, about the number on the scale, especially when you are in a marginalized body. So it's, it's very important to hold grace and space for that because again, I've had these conversations with, with other people that they're like, but what about, you know, people that are in a bigger body and live in like lower income situations and their doctor is constantly berating them. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. And in those cases, you know, I would have to be an advocate for this person and I would have to call the doctor's office and I would have to, you know, kind of have that conversation with the doctor about other issues and how this is affecting their mental health. But in general, the people that are working with me now are coming from a place of privilege where they have access to food, they have access to being able to detangle, right, their health and be able to advocate for themselves in a medical setting. And so I want to hold space for them to understand that these people, the medical world is going to be asking you to, you know, maybe change yourself and you can advocate for yourself using these resources, but also understanding that my goal as your, you know, intuitive eating dietitian isn't to ever shame or guilt you if you happen to lose weight because you started eating intuitively. Like there's this idea that we're so anti-weight loss that if somebody, God forbid, loses a few pounds that all of a sudden you're going to be like, nope, you're kicked out of my program. You can't work with me ever again. Bye. See you later. You failed. And that's not how it is. The goal is to help you find your weight stability and whether that fluctuates up, fluctuates down or stays the same, 
I'm still going to work with you and I'm still going to help you again, detangle your idea of health so that you're actually finding the true meaning behind it and what it means to you. I don't care what happens to the number on the scale. Right. Yeah. For me, I usually explain to clients like, I just, my philosophy and and what I'm going to guide you with is that I don't force weight change, even for individuals that need nutrition rehabilitation to weight restore. I'm not forcing weight change. We're just fueling your body. And that weight shift happens naturally. I'm not forcing it. It was going to happen whether or not you were working with me or somebody else. Like, so the forced weight change is what I don't engage in. Um, So I think that was a great question, Rachel. But I want to shift it into coming back to the harmful because all of this is encompassing that. How do you see this specifically within the BIPOC community? How do you see this harming those individuals specifically? As in weight loss? Or the idea of weight loss? Weight loss, convincing. Yeah. Hey, weight mm-hmm. loss is permanent. It's a, mm-hmm. a Dieting is an effective uh, tool for weight loss. How do you see that affecting the BIPOC community specifically? I think it, it really all stems back to, again, the the science being skewed and the um, research kind of all wanting everybody to look a certain way to uphold um, a certain a certain way of of portraying yourself right so like if we if we think about it it harms us in more more ways than one because not only does it affect us constantly trying to look like someone or that we're not meant to look like, right? But it also affects our mental health. And a lot of the times, not only is it affecting our mental health, it's really deteriorating our culture, right? So often I hear, you know, a lot of the people that I work with, like, I can't eat this because it's bad for me. So we're, we're, you know, trying to achieve a goal that's not for us. We are suffering you know, mentally, and that's, you know, also a big part of our health. And then we're kind of getting rid of our culture. It's like, we're all being whitewashed that that there's really no other, other way to say it. Because again, when we look at the guidelines and we look at what like nutrition is, none of our cultural foods fit that. And so we're losing ourselves. We're not only just losing you know our health we're also losing our identity as we're trying to fit into a mold that wasn't created for us i think it's important to recognize that the pressures are to fit a mold and that mold isn't the right mold right for most people and it is a privileged mold so i think that that just in and of itself is harmful right Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you're losing yourself. And it's something that we, I see a lot in, again, the American culture has done such a great job of infiltrating themselves into other cultures. I, I just finished um, doing a podcast episode with Christy Harrison. And I said, I'm from the Dominican Republic and they're celebrating Thanksgiving and Halloween there now. (laughs) This is not, it's not part of our culture, but everybody idolizes the American way. And it has been like that since Hollywood, right? I think it is Christy that says in her book how like Hollywood kind of like did this, you know, 
great job of making it seem like America is the place to be, right? And again, South America is the same way. So many idolize the way that the United States portrays itself, that we take the research from the United States and try to apply it in these countries, and yet the research isn't meant for The research is on white white men, white women. Yeah, white men. Right, yeah, and again, it's taken and tried trying to put it into context in these countries where, again, it's it's just losing yourself, losing your identity because you're trying to mimic what you think is correct. Okay, so like I mentioned earlier, it's very common for these conversations to be happening among parents about how how to change their body size and force their body to change. So how can parents listening support themselves in really challenging the diet culture messaging and this myth that we're busting today, not only to heal themselves, but so it doesn't get passed on to their kids? Um, I think it's being very honest with your kids um, and yourself that you're not always going to have amazing days in your body and sometimes you're going to say something mean about your body and acknowledging that to your child like hey mommy said this about her body because she was having a rough day but this isn't true you know like it was just I was having you know a really you know bad time you know fitting into my jeans or something I don't know (laughs) but being honest with them and being I think more importantly is showing them body diversity as you're trying to also um, understand how you fit into all of this. I I often, um, as she comes in, I am done, done. Um, I often, you know, I'm showing her like we're buying books and, and we're reading and we'll watch, you know, shows and I'll identify, you know, when they say something like we watched the Santa Claus the other day. One, she was super excited because they actually said the word dietitian. And I was like, hmm, that's probably the first time I've ever heard someone say dietitian in a movie. Wow. But they didn't say it in a good context because it was when the Santa Claus became Santa and he was in a bigger body. Oh, and he was we like, watched that yeah. too. And he was I like, had to have a conversation about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We, I had to pause yeah. the movie yeah. and be like, okay, yeah, let's this talk is about actually this. very fat phobic. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about this. Yeah. Yes. And I had to tell her that, you know, I'm like, you know, he, he's becoming Santa Claus and Santa Claus is a man in a bigger body. That's it. There's, there's no need for him to change his body. That's just the way Santa looks. And he's now Santa. Um, and again, it's having these conversations as they're happening, either pause it or coming back to it later. I usually try to tackle it as it's happening. But, you know, like when the doctor also in the movie was like, maybe you should cut back on the milk and cookies. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can have this milk and cookies. <laughs> Just brush your teeth afterwards. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, it's having these frank conversations with them, but also showing them that there's other types of body so that they're not just always seeing the same types everywhere. Uh, I think that that's important. And answering questions, like if they're curious, answer them as you're learning also to accept your body and, and accept, you know, what's happening. I love that though, because it's like, have these conversations, right? And we can flow into what that actually can look like, but you know, like you and Rachel are saying, like, wait, pause the movie. Let's talk about that. Let's call it what it is. That is fat phobic. It's trying to say that Santa's body is bad, but really Santa's body is exactly how it's supposed to be. And his body changed on its own. And that's how he became Santa. Right. So 
Yeah. And so for those listening, I think if you can take something away from what Delina just shared, it's that the more you have these conversations, the more you expose body diversity, the more you present the food, all foods fit model, that is going to, again, be the foundation for your kids to set them up because they're going to get diet culture messaging. They may go in and have a weight-centric, fat-phobic pediatrician. And guess what? You may need to change it or that's the only pediatrician available on your HMO insurance. Like, And so I think these conversations are really the building of the foundation so that they can ultimately be aware, have the education, and make the choices for themselves and prevent a life of torture through dieting. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and I think the, the most important thing you can do is show body diversity. Um, just because, again, maybe sometimes, you know, they're used to seeing what they're used to seeing on TV, but also, you know, they're not really paying attention to the outside world. <laughs> so buying books and um, just pointing things out in that context is, is also a good way for them to learn, right? They learn visually. So being able to kind of use books in that way is great. And, and they have, there's so many different, you know, books now um, about this. Um, we recently purchased Her Body Can, mm -hmm. I think it's called. Yep. Um, and we like that a lot because, you know, I'm able to point out in the book as in like not in real life, but I'm not going to be walking around like, look at that person. <laughs> but in the book, it's so much easier. <laughs> For sure. I think that's a yeah. really great point. I think too, what we're talking about with the dieting is the food piece too. You know, mm -hmm. I think making sure we're not labeling foods as good or bad. Mm -hmm. Not to like totally bash the Santa Claus movie, but one of the scenes of him and his body changing was him eating a mm -hmm. bunch of mm -hmm. foods mm -hmm. and getting, yep. he ordered a couple desserts. And yeah. that's when I paused it with the kids and I said, what you guys need to realize right now is that Santa's body would have changed no matter what he ate because he had to become yeah. Santa. Santa. So what Claus, I don't yeah. like right now is that they're showing him eating all these certain foods and they're giving him dirty looks for eating those foods. And the message there that you're being taught is those foods will make your body change and et cetera, et cetera. So I think, again, bringing it back to this whole like dieting concept, we have to be really careful about how we're also talking about foods. You know, oh, mommy, mommy was bad and ate that <laughs> or, oh, don't eat or don't eat too much of that because of this, you know? So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I think it's not only is it body diversity, but it's also being really mindful about how we talk about food. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it's funny because we we have health now in kindergarten and the other day they were actually, the teacher was following, you know, my plate. <laughs> she said something about like chocolate milk um, and my daughter raised her hand. She's like, my mommy says all foods fit. Aww. That's awesome. I, like, your daughter cool. is five. That's amazing. Okay. Good job, mom, so, on that out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly like, let's talk about that. They're saying you don't want to drink too many sugary drinks because you don't want cavities. So brush your teeth afterwards. Like just reframing it in a way that they understand. Like, because again, it happened in her preschool where the dentist came and they taught them this song about like sweet foods not being good for you. But again, in the context of your teeth, not just in general, but again, it sticks with that like um, 
you shouldn't eat anything sweet. Like you shouldn't eat cookies and things like that. That's what the song was kind of like saying. They were like, stick to fruits and vegetables, but don't eat this. And she came home singing it and asking me questions. And I'm like, they're just saying this because sugary drinks and sugary candy or whatever can sit in your teeth and cause cavities. We don't want that. So you're allowed to have the lollipops. You're allowed to have the cookies. You're allowed to have all of those foods. We just need to brush your teeth afterwards. And after that, she's never had questions. It's so funny. <laughs> she just knows. Because fruit can do the same. I know. Right? I was just saying that. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the one angle as well is that, okay, this is for our kids. And then also for us, we're being fed as adults, this information that tells us, oh, okay, you want to lose X amount of weight for that wedding, just go on the keto diet, right? And the keto diet is going to make you lose rapid weight loss. But let's think about it. It's like, one, this diet was originated for children with epilepsy because research shows that the high fat content can help lubricate the nerves in your brain to help decrease seizures. So it's better to have two seizures a day than 100 and not eat you know, carbohydrates and low protein, right? So like, let's put that into context. But for adults that don't need this diet that are going on it, your body is able to lose, let's say 20 pounds in two weeks because it's losing water. So for every carbohydrate molecule loss, it's three water molecules. And so you are just shedding your body weight of water. And then guess what? When you start eating carbohydrates again, well, you bring in those three water molecules. And so people are like, how did I gain 25 pounds when I lost 20? And it's like, well, because your body is now retaining more water. So if we can break down the science behind a lot of these misconceptions and distortions around food and diets, the reality is, is that it's not effective for permanent weight loss that we need to be coming at our health from a different angle than trying to fit in within this cultural norm and torturing ourselves by restricting out specific food groups uh, yeah like in my post yesterday I was like no grown woman should be crying about eating a cookie or being afraid of it like it's again like it's this idea it's everywhere it's every every show that I watch is it's absolutely every single radio news or commercial that I watch it's everywhere so again it's identifying what it is that you want to achieve in life like what health goals do you have do you want to be able to run after your children do you want to do this do you want to do that you can do that at any size um, and it's again detangling the idea that a look or a size is the definition of health I think this is such an amazing conversation that we could literally chat for ever about. <laughs> yeah. Ever so I appreciate ever. you coming on and sharing uh, with our listeners your expertise. And can you tell our listeners where they can find you to get more information and more of your wisdom? Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram, your.latina.nutritionist. Thank you so much, Delina. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is a wrap on this episode of the Mythbuster series, and we hope this information provides you with a more critical lens when you hear mainstream diet culture messaging. Please reach out to the person interviewed to connect with them in the ways they listed, or you can check out our social media pages at Mom Jeans the Podcast for details on the episode and to find our guests' information. And if you love the episode, 
please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and recommend this episode to a friend. Sending you the inner strength to accept your jeans with a G and wear the jeans with a J. Bye. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LaBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.